when I was asked to uh, take on the role of, of investor relations, I said, I'll only do it if you agree that we can have fun when we're out on the road. You're listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine, a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. IR Magazine had the pleasure of opening the Toronto Stock Exchange earlier this month. That followed on from the Canada Awards Ceremony, Today we'll hear a few words of wisdom from some of the award winners. We're traveling, we're doing all kinds of things where obviously it can be very intense at times and you've got to be able to laugh at yourself. And hashtag stock price boost. New research shows that when a firm tweets, investors listen. And then, IR during wartime. The Kurdistan region and Somaliland are what some people might call frontier areas, um, but with the days of easy all gone, we and our peers now have to look at areas with either technical or political risk. It's a strategy that can bring success, but also IR challenges. But first, here's a look at this week's IR headlines. Investors are angry at Snap's decision to deny them voting rights in its expected $3 billion IPO. The Council of Institutional Investors, which represents pension funds and asset managers, wants SNAP's co-founders to reconsider the structure. Other technology companies, like Google and Facebook, have concentrated control in the hands of their founders, creating different classes of stock. But none has gone public with a class that has no votes at all. Many funds will be forced to own SNAP, parent of messaging service Snapchat, when it is included in major stock market indices. Investment banks are paring back on research analysts. Data provider Coalition says the number of analysts working at the world's 12 biggest investment banks has fallen 10% since 2012. Incoming EU regulations are expected to deepen the research cull as many managers that operate in the region face requirements to pay banks directly for any research they consume. Moody's Investor Service says passive investments are set to achieve a leading share in the U.S. market in the next seven years, or maybe sooner. Exchange-traded funds and index funds now account for $6 trillion of assets globally and almost 30% of assets under management in the U.S. Save something every month and just and, and basically put it in an index fund. Right. Finally, what's the key to IR success? IR Magazine editor Tim Human put the question to two successful IROs earlier this month at the IR Magazine Awards Canada. Cineplex Entertainment's Pat Marshall. Um, I would say absolutely get out to the seminars, to the conferences, to the events that that um, are put on in the community. Join the boards either locally or nationally and meet the other IROs. They're an extraordinarily generous group of people and you'll have a lot of fun, but it'll also be an, a, a great career development opportunity for you. And Econ Group's Adam Borgatti. I think the key is ask a lot of questions early on and then ride that as long as you can. And then pretty soon people find out you, you better know what you're talking about. So, so get up the curve early, but, uh, but ask as much as you can, as, as often as you can early. 
congratulations to Ted Sarandos and his amazing licensing team. Netflix monthly viewing exceeded 1 billion hours for the first time ever in June. Ted, we need even more. Netflix CEO Reed Hastings' 2012 social media post caused Netflix stock to soar. And it also persuaded the SEC to take a hard look at firms' social media habits. That scrutiny ultimately led to social media's official sanction as a financial information source. Still, you don't see many posts quite like it these days. Prior to the regulation, you know, you'd look at tweeting days, and a lot of the time there is no market response to that tweeting. Five years later, there most certainly is. I don't like a lot of things that I see. Mohamed Al-Gwindi has spent the last several years tracking how companies use Twitter to announce financial results and how the market reacts. The doctoral candidate at Queen's University says before the 2013 SEC regulation, financial tweets were mostly self-congratulatory hype. Today, he says, the regulation has forced CEOs, now directly liable for content, to ensure more accurate and informative Twitter accounts. And that's worked out pretty good for companies. Al Gwindi's research shows that after the regulation, financial tweets correspond to an increase in trading volume and an almost 20 basis points increase in returns. Companies are tweeting better information and markets are responding to, uh, to, to this information. Another interesting finding, Al Gwindi says that pairing a good news press release with tweets has a remarkably synergistic effect on stock returns. It's close to three times when you combine the two compared to press releases alone. Return. If your news is good, you're going to use one channel to communicate it. But if your news is extra good, you should use all the channels possible, uh, including Twitter and press releases. doesn't get many investor requests for site visits. That's likely because all of the LSE-listed oil and gas companies' reserves and production operations are in Iraq's Kurdistan region. Since 2014, the rise of ISIS has scared off most investors, and Ganel's share price has fallen about 90%. Speaking at last year's IR Magazine conference, UK and Ireland, Corbett outlined the challenges facing the company and explained its struggle to woo back investor confidence amidst the backdrop of war and instability. Now, the Kurdistan region is a semi-autonomous region of Iraq. Well, what does that mean? It means that the regional government in the Kurdistan region exercises significant control and influence over day-to-day life. So one of the matters which the regional government believes it has responsibility for under the Iraqi constitution is control over uh, the development and export of its oil. That's not been without issues. The federal government in Baghdad has claimed uh, all all oil sales by the regional government, including ours, is illegal. From the moment our company was listed on the LSE back in 2011, a significant part of the IR program has been educating existing and potential investors in our business on the internal politics in Iraq and the natural resource potential of the region. 
not surprised to hear that the geographical location of our assets is the key driver behind the challenging macro backdrop we've had to deal with over the past couple of years. So I've listed the challenges that we've had to face on this slide. All oil and gas producers, to a greater or lesser extent, have been impacted by the slide in the oil price over the past two years. However, the impact on Ganel and its peers in the Kurdistan region has been compounded by the financial stress that that slide in the oil price has placed on the regional government, for which oil exports are its only significant source of revenue. The regional government is the counterparty for our oil sales, i.e. they pay us for the oil that we produce. We are currently owed over $400 million by the Kurdistan regional government for oil that we have produced, which we have not been paid for, a figure in excess of our market capitalisation. As well as the fiscal issues, the political backdrop has also been a significant challenge, particularly the emergence of ISIS as a major disruptive force in Iraq for mid-2014, elevated security concerns to the top of the agenda for all oil companies uh, operating in the Kurdistan region. We're also a Turkish business by origin. Uh, as a result, instability in Turkey, including the attempted coup earlier this year, raises the risk perception for investors in our stock. So if that weren't enough, we have also suffered from some adverse operating performance, including this pipeline being disrupted time to time by, uh, by terrorists. So, what are the lessons to take away from this experience? Institutional investors in companies such as ours understand that when they're investing in a company that has operations in the Kurdistan region, they're investing in a company with a higher risk profile than most. And that should be part of their due diligence before they invest. So we tended to prioritise long-term EM value funds uh, over energy specialists when we've done our targeting. EM investors, by definition, have a higher risk tolerance, which should expedite the diligence process on a company such as ours. So as a result, we have had a number of substantial, top-tier, very recognisable institutional investors over the past two years who have not only maintained their positions as the share price has declined, but added to them in order to average down their in-price. So key to that was constant engagement with those investors during periods of political instability. We may not have been able to give definitive answers to questions such as what threat does ISIS pose to the borders of the Kurdistan region or to your oil fields, but by staying in close contact with both the buy and sell side during this period, we were able to offer background and insights which were valuable to the investment process. So we sit here today, what are the challenges that any prospective investor in our company has to focus on before they decide to invest? So first and foremost, Iraq and its oil production and export generate a significant amount of coverage and research from the media, sell side, consultants, etc. If trying to wade through all of that wasn't enough, not all of it is objective and or uh, well-informed and should be taken with a pinch of salt. So a potential investor has to spend a disproportionate amount of time relative to their holding in the stock, uh, monitoring news wires, and then needs to decide what's relevant. So I see it as our job to steer investors to the reputable stories 
and provide insight that allows them for an informed investment choice. Of course, we get to see and read most of the media commentary and the sell-side research on us and the Kurdistan region. And where, when we come across something that's particularly interesting or illuminating, and where possible, we try to distribute that to the investment community. So by doing that, there's an obligation on us to be uh, objective in particular and disseminate information that's useful, timely and informative, even, e even if it isn't of immediate benefit to us. That's part of the process to try and short-circuit the amount of time the investment community has to spend on our stock in the Kurdistan region and all of that incremental news flow. We have in the past offered briefing calls to top shareholders with management I guess above and beyond what might be considered as best practice in terms of the amount of management time that is spent talking to shareholders. I'm also very active engaging with analysts and in particular very, very focused on analyst forecasts and we're always very quick to pick up on any errors or deviations from consensus and guidance. And that's because the contracts which govern how much revenue we generate from our fields are a matter of public record. And so therefore, there shouldn't really be any, any excuse for analysts to get that wrong. So where appropriate, we also provide enhanced insight into accounting methodologies, assumptions underlying our payments from the government to ensure that the, the range of dispersion around analyst forecasts is as low as possible. We also ran a, an in-depth perception study earlier this year uh, the feedback from that was quite hard-hitting, but that's what we'd requested, and we have as much broker feedback as we possibly can. So, combining those two uh, allows us to get as much market feedback as possible in real time, and that helps when we're evolving our corporate messaging. You can check out the full video on our website or on YouTube. And now... Ticker Podcast Correction. In last week's podcast, I mischaracterized OTC Markets Group. What I should have said was that OTC Market Group's two top markets are premium markets with certain qualitative and quantitative standards, while companies on its pink market are simply segmented by the quality and quantity of their disclosure. I just wanted to get that right. Thanks for listening. See you in IR space. Jeff Cassette. You've been listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine. For free access to all the latest global investor relations news and analysis, register at irmagazine.com or download the app.